Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Lovely to see you. If you have a Bible, we'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, the first half of the story of the ark entering into Jerusalem. The second half, Michael and her folly, we'll leave till next week. This week, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. So before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the prophets, Lord, who have provided us with this account of what occurred when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. I pray, Lord, as we consider this this story, this history of our people, that you would teach us what it means, Lord, to touch holy things, what it, what it means to interact, Lord, with the triune God of heaven and earth, the maker of all things. I pray, God, that you would... Uh, bestow upon our hearts and our minds proper reverence, Lord, um, that understands that we have been taken into the great story of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, and, and he is here with us now, and we can hold, uh, see him and touch him, Lord, and know him. I pray, God, that you would help us to bear this burden of glory. We thank you, and we praise you, and amen. Now, what's occurred are two victories. Two back-to-back quick victories over the Philistines, which reverse a great deal of history. David is undoing, like Christ, the falls of his people. Now, going all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, the battle of Aphek, the Philistines had won that victory. The Philistines had carried off the ark of the Lord. The glory of Israel had departed. Now what has happened is that the Philistines have been defeated and they left their idols on the battlefield. David has taken the idols of the Philistines. He's taken them and we're not told what he does with them, but I am sure that he destroys them. A man like David is not going to take the idols and take them to the tent of meeting with the Lord and set them there like the Philistines had taken the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon. So now what is... What are the Philistines going to do? They're down, but they're certainly not out, right? The Philistines have been attacking Israel, going all the way back to the book of Judges. They're they're not going to simply disappear after two victories. Now, Yahweh has chased the Philistines back as far as Gezer in 2 Samuel 5, 25. And now the ark is in a town nearby. David has taken the idols of his enemies. David has defeated them in battle. And now they're near the place where the ark rests. What are the Philistines going to do? Now, to get ahead just a moment, he mentions the fact in 2 Samuel that he takes 30,000 men with him. Now, this reminds us that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10, we were told that Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. So all signs here point to a reversal of the Battle of Aphek. The question is, what are the Philistines going to do? Are they going to try, now, for tat, take your God since you took our gods? Are they going to try to reclaim the ark? Have they forgotten all the terrible things that happened to them when they took it the first time? What's interesting is that the ark is called, they refer to it as called by the name. Called by the name is the the phrase that they use. It's called by the name in chapter 6, verse 2. Now this reminds us that Yahweh's promise was to choose a place to set his name. He wants to set his name upon something. And he promised to do so after he gave rest to Israel. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. This is what we read. This is the promise that's being fulfilled. 
Deuteronomy 12.11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Now, this is what Yahweh wants. He wants to set his name upon a particular location that will then become the center of the world. It will be the place where heaven and earth meet. And that would be the most important place on earth. And David wants that place to be the city that he's just taken. He wants to get the ark. He understands what it is. He wants to bring it into the city that he has just conquered. And he wants to make that city the center of the world. Bringing the ark to the city of David will establish Zion as the central location, not only of worship, not only that the Lord is sharing Sabbath rest with Israel after its toil internally and defeating its external foes, David, the new king, is trying to fulfill prophetic utterances of Moses. He knows the word of God. He says, hey, you know what? Where we put this gold box is where God said he will dwell eternally, that this will be the center of the earth. And now what he wants to do is go get the gold box. And at this point, I think in his mind, this is how he's referring to it. Let's go get the gold box that's associated in some way with Yahweh, and let's get that and put it in the center of my city. But there are other things that the Lord has said, right? David is focused on a single promise. Where the, where the gold box goes, God will go and his blessing will go. But that's not the only things that the Lord has said about his gold box. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ao, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ao went before the ark. Let's go get the gold box. Let's put it in a nice Bentley. Let's drive it on up to Jerusalem. And then we will be the talk of the town. Now, David's twin victories against the Philistines guaranteed that Israel's enemy would be motivated to return and fight another day. They're not going to take this lying down. They haven't for 30 chapters. David was especially aware, after taking the Philistine gods, as recorded in 521, that reprisals against Yahweh's throne are likely. Everyone understands what the gold box represents. They don't, however, understand what the gold box is. And there's a difference. What does it represent, but what is it? Right? It says here that he's enthroned upon it. What does that mean, right? I thought God lived in heaven, (laughs) right? So it's just a gold box. It's just supposed to represent a mysterious throne that exists somewhere. But now that the Philistines are defeated, it is likely that they're going to attack Israel. And because throughout this whole thing, it's been an attack of um, gods versus gods, right? What did they do when they killed Saul? They took took the, um, the body of Saul. They took... Uh, artifacts from Saul, and they wanted to traipse it around Philistia so they could show that they had defeated Israel. Well, now Israel has their God, so what's likely? Well, it's probably likely that they're going to go and steal the gold box that represents Israel's God. Now, what is the ark? What is it physically? Now, the ark was an object closely associated with Israel's God, Yahweh. 
The ark contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, not the ones that the Lord himself wrote, because those were broken. These are the Ten Commandments that Moses wrote on two tablets, detailing the covenant between Israel and the Lord. The ark was a place of divine revelation. In Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, this is what it says. Numbers 7, 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now, I understand how technology works. Is there a speaker? Right? Is there Bluetooth technology in which God from heaven speaks through an ark? Right? It's clearly, in this verse, not just a gold box. There's a voice coming from above the gold box. The gold box seems to be more than just a gold box. The ark was an object of such overwhelming significance of value and prized to the Philistines, it's worthy of a massive protective force. That's why David takes 30,000 soldiers. He wants to go and protect the king of Israel. Unlike when Saul died, right? What happened to Saul? Saul died on a mountain alone. Where was Israel? What we're going to see through the story is that David, the king of Israel, is, 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 is going to consi- consistently and continually point out who the true king of Israel is. Because in, in the old school battles, it's not like now, right? Now the generals sit in a room in the, in the Oval Office, right? And, and they push buttons and, and they watch big TV screens as the Navy SEALs go into the you know, enemy camp and shoot everyone. That's not how generals did things back in the day. That's not how kings did things. They rode into battle. And when the king comes, falls off his horse, everyone rallies to the standard. You don't let the flag hit the ground. You don't let the king fall off his horse. You don't let the king fall. You rally to the king. And what is interesting here is after two victories, David is less concerned about his victories than he is about protecting the throne of his king. He's calling 30,000 troops, come on, to the king. Let us go to the standard, for the king is off in some random town on the edge of, the, of Israel, and that's not where he belongs. And he's, a, he's in danger. He's in danger of being lost again. And never again, according to David, will the glory of Israel depart. The ark is the Lord's throne. It says in Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth. It's, it's not just a gold box. It is where the Lord God sits. It is where the Lord God s- speaks from. It is where the Lord God keeps the Ten Commandments of all things. After a century in the house of Abinadab on the hill, David is going to bring the ark to his stronghold in Zion. He is going to recognize that there is a king in the city of David, and it's not David. This has been the problem all along. Right? Remember, why did Israel want a king? What, what was that all about? God said, you've rejected me as king. And now, and, and the ark, once it came back into the land, kept killing everybody. And so they just were like, oh, let's just store this thing in this little town on the edge of Judah, near Philistia of all places, and let's just leave it there, and hopefully it doesn't hurt anybody. And David now wants to restore the true king of Israel to his throne, and so he wants to rally Israel and go get the, go get the ark and bring it to the city of David, not to glorify David, but to glorify God. He's going to restore the king of Israel, just as he has been restored as the king of Israel. 
David's gathering represents the whole nation. He is rallying them to protect the king's throne. Unlike Saul's demise, where he died alone, he will not leave the king of Israel alone to fight his own battles. And that's where we begin to go wrong. Because here's a question. Does the ark need men to defend it? Right? Now, now this, is, this is what I love about David. This is what I love about all of us. Is David's intention necessarily wrong? No. But there is a little bit of error mixed in with it, right? Does the gold box need a, an armed guard? Well, if you know your history, it didn't, right? Because <laughs> they couldn't get it out of uh, Philistia fast enough because everybody was dying and their gods are falling over and breaking their necks. And they wanted to get the box out of there as fast as they could. It's a lion, it does, right? It, it, just let it out of its cage and it will take care of itself. So David here both recognizes what it is and, and wants to honor and glorify it, but he's honoring and glorifying it in, in a way that is inappropriate. And that is where he's, his, he and his people are going to be led astray. There, right? It's not enough that we want to honor God. There is a right way to do it and there is a wrong way to do it. It's not enough that we receive grace from him. You receive it in, in a particular way and you use it in a particular way. David wants to honor God. Great. Do it the right way, David. Otherwise, and, and what we are going to see is that people really lose their lives. This is what it says, right? This is, David has all this great intention, but, it, but he, he's, he's got some things a little messed up. His theology is a little off, and it, and it actually goes very badly for them. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5-7, through 7, we read this. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of, of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, I don't know about you. I've always read this story, and I really have a hard time with it. Have you? Right? I mean, come on, Uzzah loves God. He loves God. He doesn't want his, right? It's not a gold box, Uzzah. But isn't it? Isn't it a gold box to use it? This is what I struggle with here. Right? He doesn't want it to fall into the dirt. Amen. He's touching it, and you're not supposed to do that. That's the problem. And so and, and what we read this story, and especially, especially because we do these kinds of things, we feel like we've got to defend him against God. Like, God, stop taking yourself so seriously. Right? It's just a gold box. Now, We've got to start at the beginning, though, because touching it is where, that, that's where they were making other mistakes. It's not as if they make one error and God just starts annihilating people. They make a series of errors. The first one is that they put the, the ark on a, on a cart. You're not supposed to carry it in a cart. Now, only the Kohathites were allowed to carry the ark, and they had to carry it on their shoulders, not on a cart. It says in First Chronicles 15, 15, 1 Chronicles 15, 15. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of God. Now, when David was reviewing the promises of God in Deuteronomy, and he says, hey, where, where God's name is, there is his blessing. He read that part, but he seemed to miss the part where, hey, if we're going to carry this thing, we've got to use poles. And there's only a particular set of Levites who can actually carry it on the poles. 
Now, the last time we saw the ark on a cart, it was the Philistines who were carrying it. 1 Samuel 6, 7. The, the Philistines, who didn't know any better, and God is merciful to them because they don't know any better, they put it on the cart, and he doesn't kill them for that. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't um, flesh out forth his anger towards the Philistines because they don't know any better. But David and his people are supposed to know better. Don't put it on a cart, and yet they put it on a cart. The Israelites are acting like Philistines. They are violating a direct command of Yahweh. They are acting like pagans, unfamiliar with God's holiness. And isn't this something that Christians do? Don't we bring in pagan worship into what we are when we're trying to worship the Lord our God? Right? We don't know any better, and so we end up doing well. You know what we ought to do to honor people? <laughs> you know what God really likes is service. So let's cancel our, our Lord's Day service on Sundays, and let's go and do a service project in the, in, in the neighborhood, and let's honor that service to the Lord because he loves service. This is an argument people make. Churches do this annually. Uh, they close their church and do a service project on Sunday morning. Now, is, is what they're intending to do wrong? No, they want to honor God with service. <laughs> but they're going about it in a way that is dishonoring to him. They don't know that you're not supposed to put the ark on a cart. And why don't they? Why don't they understand that the Lord's Day is different than regular days? And this is a, an example that I could go over. I could spend the, the next 45 minutes just talking about this. The way that we don't understand how we're violating God's law and how to honor him and how to serve him. Now, furthermore, no one was supposed to approach the throne of Yahweh except the high priest on the Day of Atonement and the Kohathites who carried the ark, and no one was supposed to see it, let alone touch it. It was supposed to be something you don't even look upon. You don't even look upon it. Now, as the ox cart was being pulled down the hill, the oxen stumbled. Instinctively, the Levitical priest Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God to stabilize and to protect it. And, and, and right there, that's where he went wrong. What is dirtier, his hand or the ground? <laughs> Does the fact that the thing falls on the dirt, is that worse than someone who knows, should know that they're not supposed to touch it, touches it? Right there, he's already got it on a cart. He's already looking at the thing he's not supposed to look at. And now what he's going to do is he's going to reach out and grab it. Now, isn't this the story of mankind? There is an apple, don't touch it. Oh, wait, no, he didn't say that. He said just don't, don't eat it. But then she starts adding to it. It's funny that at this point you're not, even, you're not supposed to look or touch at the ark, but Eve in the garden wasn't supposed to eat it. And she reached out and grabbed it, didn't she? What is David doing? He's a king like Saul in some ways. He's, he's taking things. He's reaching out and grabbing onto things that are not his to take. Man is a graspy creature. And laying hold of the ark is not something you're supposed to do, but it represents what's wrong with us. Numbers chapter 4, verses 15. Right? This is partially what we're demonstrating for us. How, how many of you guys think, you know what, I'm going to do some edifying Bible reading, and I'm going to read Numbers. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm really going to do is I'm going to take a year, and I'm just going to study genealogies and Genesis. We don't do that. Why? Because it's not as boring compared to Romans, right? That's where the real action is. It's not as memorable as Ephesians. We all have our favorite gospel, 
right? But, but what, what is demonstrated here is that the, the lack of knowledge about the word of God and what it requires of us. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Now, whose fault is it then? Is it God's fault for being unmerciful? Is it God's fault for being judgy? Right? You're so judgy, God. He says right here, hey, guys, listen, this, this thing that you're carrying is not just a gold box. Okay? It may look like a gold box, but that's not all it is. And so, listen, for your own protection, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Okay? You know what? Don't even look at it. And then what would we do? We look at it, and we touch it, and we drop dead, and we think, God, you're a jerk. You're an absolute jerk. Could you have some patience with these poor people? They're trying to honor you. And this is the kind of nonsense that we all fall into. I will honor God, and I will honor God any way that I want to. Well, you know, God's very clear about how to honor him. He tells us. No, see, we're free now. It's all grace. It's all grace. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just worship him because what he wants is a pure heart that just loves to worship him. Okay, true. Right? Get the heart right. And then do it this way. But modern people hear what I am saying now, and they're like, listen to this. Woo, listen to this guy. Pharisee of Pharisees, this one. We cannot simply do what is right in our own eyes. The whole counsel of God is given to us because sometimes when you approach even communion, it says in, in Corinthians, you can do it in such a way that you will drop dead. Now, I, I, I'm honestly going to ask you, how many of you really believe that's true? I don't. I, I honestly don't. I'm not going to eat this bread in such a way I'm going to drop dead. The word of God says it's possible, but why don't I believe it? And if I don't believe that, right, how might I treat it? Because th- th- this is what it's always about. Do we really believe these things? We say we honor them. Our lips are near them. Our lips are near the word of God. Thank you, God, for this word. This is a beautiful word. I'm not going to die if I drink this wine improperly. What a bunch of hubbubaloo, right? What are we, West African unbelievers, right? right? Pagan world, we're out there. There's dancing spirits. We don't really believe the word of God. We don't, we, we struggle to actually honor what God says about himself. He says, touch it and you die. He touches it and he dies and we all struggle with whether he's actually gracious. Now, this aspect of biblical law and revelation of our holy God is hard for modern, materialistic, egalitarian Christians to understand. Right? If, if I'm a co-heir with Christ, I'll touch any gold box that I want to. If I'm a co-heir with Christ, I'll touch the bread anyhow, any way I want. I'm a co-heir now. Right? We're all the same. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Don't grasp after it. It's not something you're going to just be able to reach out and grab off a tree. It's not something that on an ox cart as a stumbles you're able to just reach out and grab. This is the holiness of God. You can't just touch it. Now, what, what is fascinating is Paul says, now, in Christ, in Christ now, these things are yours. They were given to you. You didn't grasp them. 
Uzzah, like Eve, reached out to grasp a forbidden object. The kings of Israel, they all take. They're all a bunch of graspers. Man grasps, grasps for forbidden things and ultimately equality with God. Right? What did Eve say, or what did Satan say to Eve? He doesn't want you to eat this object. He said, don't touch it because he doesn't want you to be like him. Because was she just grabbing after an apple? Or was she grabbing after equality with God? Now, Jesus, who actually has equality with God because he is God, doesn't, right? He, he takes, he's very humble about it. Everything I have, I receive from my Father. Well, I'm sorry. That seems a little subservient, doesn't it? Like, Jesus, you were there in the beginning with God the Father. What are you talking about him giving you anything? Why are you not honoring yourself more than that? And do we really think about what these things mean? What does it mean that one who is co-equal to the Father actually talks in a subservient way? And yet we think godliness is something that we can grab onto like a gold box. We don't know the word of God as well as we think, and we do whatever is right in our own eyes most of the time. Now Uzzah, he's irreverent. Appropriately, the Lord's anger burns against him, and he drops dead. Now this is personal. It's very clear here, right? A rock didn't fall out of the sky on his head. A parasite doesn't suddenly take him off the earth. It says God strikes him down. It's personal, right? This is a personal God. When he blesses you, it's personal. When he curses you, it's personal. There are no impersonal forces in this world. When he comes and he blesses you, it's him personally blessing you. When he comes and he lays curses upon you, right? It's not the Russians who are now terrorizing Ukraine. It's God. Now, why would he do that? That we can discuss. Why does he use an evil nation to, dis- to practically destroy another evil nation? Because he wants to save his people, right? That, that's a story that's very old. Why, when, when things happen to us, do we, do we talk about impersonal force? I mean, they used to call them acts of God, right? A tornado comes through, and there are a bunch of mobile homes that are in a place they really shouldn't put mobile homes Right? If you're going to put a mobile home park, why are we ever having mobile home parks in areas where they have tornadoes? There seems like there's a better way. Hobbit holes or something. I digress. This is why I'm not part of the you know, urban planning committee. But they used to call them acts of God. Right? Now we're like climate change. Man, Mother Nature's punching back now, and she's not happy. How about the United States is an evil country and God is trying to wake up everyone, right? Wake us up to how evil we are. How about that? When Uzzah drops dead, it's God that does it. Now, in the previous chapter, Yahweh broke out against the Philistines. The Israelites are acting like Philistines. And so when Uzzah grasped the ark, Yahweh broke through against the Israelites who were imitating Philistines. There is a certain thing here where it doesn't matter if you're of the household of Israel. It doesn't matter if you're of the household of Philistia. It, there are certain ways if you, if you re, are disobedient and ignore the word of God and act this way, no matter what tribal affiliation you have, God is going to break out against you. Right? Your baptism is not going to save you. Just like these, here's Uzzah, he's wearing, for goodness sakes, the, the robes of a Levite. 
And did that save him? Now, like Uzzah, those men, in, back in 1 Samuel 6, they touched the ark when it came back into the land of Israel. They committed a sacrilege, sacrilege and the Lord struck down 50,070 of them. Remember that? When, oh, the ark is coming back. And nobody was like, hey, maybe we should go back to the book of Numbers and find out how we're supposed to deal with this object. They're like, ah, the gold box! Gold box, we miss you, gold box. And 50,000 people die because they're handling it in a way that God said not to. Now, think about where they are. Where have they, they've taken the ark, and where have they just left? Well, they've left a threshing floor. And what is a threshing floor? Well, it's where you separate wheat and chaff. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Since God is the wisest of kings, he drives the threshing wheel over the wicked to separate the wheat from the chaff. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That is the Lord God we serve. He threshes. And, the, and, and anything that stands in his way gets crushed under a giant wheel that goes round and round and round and round. He crushes the head of our enemy. Right? And that's what we were promised in Genesis 3, that one would come who crushed the head of our enemies. And here, it's the Lord God who does it. Now, at times, Israel was the nation threshed by the Lord's judgment. And sometimes the threshing stone are other nations. He uses other nations to discipline Israel. They're like the big, he's like, hold on, I got to go out and get a switch. And he goes out into the nations and grabs the Philistines and he says, now I'm going to spank my son. Right? I'm going to spank all my kids in Ukraine and the nation I'm going to do it with is Russia. I'm I'm going to spank the United States and the the stick that I'm going to use, the switch that I'm going to use is a pandemic first, free money second, and the natural inflation that occurs afterwards. And I don't know, I feel like saying uncle at this point, don't you? Like, all right, you have my attention now. I'm not saying necessarily I'm going to repent just yet, but at least you have my attention. (laughs) And I feel like that's what America is like. We're starting to wake up a little bit. But but there is discipline that remains if if we continue to ignore him. These things are not accidents. There are no, right? COVID is not an impersonal a uh, naturalistic thing that just exists all by itself that has its own mind. There is someone behind these things. Now let us comprehend what this text is actually saying. Namely, that God justly punished Uzzah after several, several things that he did that he was not supposed to. They put it on a cart, nobody dies. Right? There are people not carrying it like they're supposed to. They're looking at it, nobody dies. He touches it, okay, listen, I, I can, right? I am the Lord God, and I have standards that you have forgotten, and let me just get your attention. Now, what you have is a culture here, right? This is not an accident. This guy didn't just wake up one morning and be like, you know what I'm going to do is today is ignore the word of God. What we've been following so far is Saul had no problem laying violent hands on David, a, a, a sacrosanct object. David himself is sacrosanct in the hands of God. 
And Saul had no problem. The king, who's supposed to set the moral standard, had no problem laying violent hands on sacrosanct objects. Now, this lack of reverence for those who are sacrosanct, objects of holiness, becomes a cultural norm. The difference between sacred and common is marred, and eventually what you have are people dropping dead in fields, touching the ark of God that they're not even supposed to look at. As the king goes, so go the people. As the father goes, so go the family. As the pastor goes, so go the people of God. And on and on and on. As the CEO of a corporation goes, so goes the corporation. Now, the very angels of paradise hide their faces before the throne of God. They don't look upon it, right? Just like we're not supposed to look upon the ark. How should it be for us, poor vessels of clay, when come around holy objects, when the angels themselves cover their eyes in heaven? It's important to remember how God's holy possessions are supposed to be treated. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you, okay, you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believers are God's holy objects, and to lay a hand on them is to defile them. God will break out against any such defilers. The Lord is enthroned upon our praises, which makes us sacrosanct. We are, in fact, the throne of God, just like the ark was. The Psalms say that the, that the Lord God is enthroned upon our praises. That makes us a sacrosanct object. And what is he going to do to people who put their dirty paws on us? This is why part, a lot of our evangelism should be motivated, motivated by the fact that we don't want people to be crushed under the threshing stone. Man grasps, grasps after equality with God, disobeying his word, defiling holy things. It is only through the obedience and the holiness of Christ that we attain this God-likeness. It's something that we receive, not something that we grab onto. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. This brotherhood was given to us. You can't go out and grab it off a tree. It's, it's not this gold box on a cart that we can touch whenever we want. It's something that is put into our hands. It's something that's given to us. We become united with God by his giving, not by our grasping. We all need to be do more receiving and less seizing. And my goodness, if I can make t-shirts, okay? We all need to do more receiving and less seizing. But once you have become a holy possession of the Lord... He will judge anyone who lays a violent, grasping hand upon you. Having witnessed the dramatic demonstration of the Lord's zeal to protect his holiness, David responds appropriately. This is why David is David. This is why he has a heart after God. God's angry, and what does David do? He gets angry. Well, I thought anger was a sin. Well, I'm going to let you figure that out. Because all anger is not a sin. Man's anger is a sin. God's anger is not. So if you have anger like his, bada bing, bada boom, see, logic. David's response to God's anger is like, you know what, I'm kind of angry too. <laughs> this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. 
And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Now, I want, to be, I want to explain something here, because the way they translate this, it sounds like David is angry at God because of what God has done. That's not true. He's angry because it's happened. He's angry because it's happened. This has happened, and I am angry. How did this happen to us? Who can carry this thing around? Now, he's asking a rhetorical question. How are we going to bring this thing into the city when this is what happens when we try? And it takes three months before he figures out how to do it. And, and I imagine David himself sitting in a library somewhere saying, let's read numbers. Let's go back. Let's do a little review. Let's look into the doctrines of this because this is broken out against us. Let's go back to school and figure out why and figure out how to prevent it. He's not angry at God because he thinks God has done something he ought not. He's angry because he realizes he has done something he ought not. His respect for the Lord's power, his willingness to, to use it, and God's willingness to use it against Torah violators, causes David to ask, how can the ark come to me? How can it? I've got to find out. Now, this fear generated by Uzzah's death is positive. It's a positive fear. This is a sober, honest fear, the kind that results from fresh contact with the otherness of God, the godness of God the divine perfection, the holiness of God. What he has run into and why he is afraid is is the same reason other prophets see into the throne room of God and they fall down as if they are going to, to, to dissolve into nothing and say, woe is me, I am undone. David has come smack up against the godness of God, the otherness of God, and it fills him with fear. Okay, now... We've got to slow down here, fellas. Now we've got to do a little research. Now we've got to go about this the right way because this is not just a gold box. It is not just a gold box. Now, the ark represented something. It wasn't just a symbol, was it? Now, and this is where we all are going to struggle in ways I can hardly describe. Is it just a gold box? I mean, it's, it's made out of gopher wood. They covered it in gold, right? If you, if, you, if, you, if you got some scientists in there and they did some research, it's just gold like all the other gold. Like, right? It's just wood like all the other wood. But is that all it is? What does the bread and wine and water of baptism represent? Is it just water? Right now, okay, okay. I, I have a, a silver pitcher. I have it in the back there. I go to the sink in the back where we get all the water that we do everything here, and I fill this silver pitcher, usually with warm water. I learned that lesson. <laughs> and you also have to fill it all the way up to the top because then otherwise you're like tipping it like this far, and then you, it's like a wave. <laughs> now, we could get some scientists down here, and what, what, is the, what, what is the silver pitcher? It's not even really silver, I don't think. Silver plated. What's the water? We get some scientists in here, and they'll be like, well, there's a lot of fluoride in this water. I wonder what that's about. That's a story for another day. But what is it? Now, is that all it is? Now, I, right, and this is where <laughs> Christians throughout time run in two directions. It's not anything but a gold box. It's nothing but a piece of bread. Okay, now what we're going to do is we realize it's more than that. Okay, so now what we're going to do is nobody can eat the bread that's left over now because it's sacrosanct and it's holy. No, that's actually not true. Right? 
right? As soon as, as, soon as the service is over, <laughs> all of our little kids come running up, and they're just like, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, it's not sacrosanct anymore. And I, I truly believe it's not. But if a little kid came running up here and to do that now, well, everyone would see the wrath of Kloss, right? <laughs> Get away from the ark. We don't want something to flash out. Are these objects that God has given us, right, just symbols? That's it. It's just a piece of bread. It's just a cup of wine. Now, <laughs> I had a Catholic friend come here years ago when we baptized one of our kids, and he took the piece of bread and he put it in his mouth and he just held it there waiting for it to dissolve because in Catholic service, you, you, that's where you have this dissolving cracker because you don't want to get Jesus stuck in your teeth. And I'm purposely irreverent. Because they're not going to chew it because they think it's actually him. If you did like a DNA test, it's Jesus. Is that what you're saying? Right? I have a piece of him here. This is why in the early church they were accused of cannibalism. They thought they had the body of this Christ guy somewhere and everybody was eating pieces of it. And and we are, but we're not. And, And I think this is a huge struggle for us. And I think that's what this story is about. It is, and right, what, what would happen if somebody was, was being reverential towards the ark in a way that God told them not to and was too much? Right? Jesus comes and he's like, well, what's sacred, the gold or the sacrifice? Or, you know, what makes what holy here? He's like, you guys are overdoing it. You can't just say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You can't go to heaven and, and as you're being cast into hell be like, but I was baptized. Right? It is just water, but it's not just water. And, and you see the struggle. And, and I think we need to understand this idea because we're, we're, we're handling these things in a way that's inappropriate. Now, I'm with C.S. Lewis. Besides the sacrament itself, the holiest object to your senses is your neighbor. Because your neighbor is made in the image of God. Your neighbor is the person that Jesus died for. The, right? You're supposed to love him like you love God, for goodness sakes. So the holiest object, apart from the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is your neighbor. And yet we lay graspy, violent hands on one another all the time. We do not know how to treat things that are sacrosanct. We don't know how to treat things that are set apart as holy to the Lord. And, and, what, and what's needed for David is a little healthy fear. He needs to remember who he's dealing with. And once he remembers who he's dealing with, that's when he fixes the process. Well, he says, okay, now, and, and this is where it gets really tricky. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to get the Kohathites. Boom, get them. Okay, now we're going to get the sticks, the proper sticks. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everyone lift it up on your shoulder. Good, good. We're going to go six steps, and then we're going to stop and we're going to sacrifice a bunch of animals. Now, what's fascinating is it doesn't say to do that anywhere. But he's doing it, and God's not angry with that. Why? He's doing more than what the scriptures tell him. And I thought that was the problem before. I, I love you guys. I'm not going to fix this. This is one. I'm just going to leave this puzzle in your hands. Why is he not angry about this? Right? What is different about what David is doing now? It's not what God said to do. It's more than what God said to do. But I thought God always hated that. Right? Eve said, don't, don't touch it. But that's not what he said, right? I mean, there was, see, see there there's, requires sanctified wisdom here. There is a joyful fear that we ought to have about these things. There is a mystery to them. What we cannot do is just run headlong into it, right? Oh, look, the gold box is going to fall. Let's touch it. 
you're like, no, my hand is dirtier than the ground. Okay, the Lord likes sacrifice. What am I supposed to do? Okay, so we're going to carry it the right way, but we're going to add these other parts because that seems honoring to God. And, and he's got to work it out. It takes him three months to figure out what they're supposed to do. Now, what, what we also see in this little story is that this revelation of God's fearful holiness, which we ought to be more afraid of than we are, is a blessing to Gentiles. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, I'm going to go out on the skinny branches because there's this huge controversy over who this guy is. Some, right? He's a Levite. Fine, granted. Yet he's a Gentile. Now, again, this is one of the glorious mysteries of Scripture. How do you reconcile that? I don't know, but let me give you the evidence. Okay? Because they're like, no, no, there's no way this guy's a Gentile. But hold on. Hold on. Obed-Edom is a Gentile, okay? And, and we know this because he's called a Gittite. Every other person who's called a Gittite in Scripture is a pagan. Every other one of them is a Gentile. There's never a Gittite who is also an Israelite. Several other places have Gath in the name, but they are obscure, and one would expect some further explanation if another city were intended. It's not that Gath <laughs> where the Gentiles are from, but it doesn't say that. Now, the name means servant of Edom. Now, the Edomites are not Levites. So his, name, his very name is, I'm a servant of Edom. Well, how is a servant of Edom come into the household of God um, having something to do here with the ark? Instead of bringing plagues, as it did to, during its sojourn in Philistia, the ark brings blessing to Obed-Edom. The blessing on Obed-Edom's household seemingly took the form of fertility. First Chronicles 26.8. Now listen to this. This is remarkable. All these were the sons of Obed-Edom with their sons and brothers, able men qualified for the service, 62 of Obed-Edom. Now that's some fecundity right there. That's some fertility. And, and what I think is going on here is that David's attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his city to bless Israel is a blessing also to the nations. Right? David has all this history with Gath. We heard about it. He, he has hundreds of Gittites in his military. He is a picture of Christ who goes out and doesn't just serve Israel. He serves the nations. And he's uniting both the nations and Israel together. And what you see here is that God is reassuring him. The ark actually does bless the person whose household it comes into. Right? Now, Obed-Adam didn't go and carry it improperly into his own house. It was delivered. Thank goodness. Right? UPS rolled up. It was like, here's the ark. And you see, wherever the ark actually is, blessing comes to that household, no matter what household they're of. And that's something that, that the Israelites were always missing in their story. The blessings to you are so rich and so glorious and so good, they flash forth to, to the nations. They flash out, not just to your tribe, but to other people's tribes. And what I like is that David gets a little jealous they come and they're like, hey, it, it actually blessed him. And David's like, see, I knew it. I knew that's what was going to happen. You put that gold box in somebody's house and the house gets blessed. Thank goodness I've been reading numbers for three months. He's provoked to jealousy. And then this is what he does. Second Samuel 6, 12 through 15. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Ah, because of the ark of God. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now this time it's carried by hand properly, not on a cart. They take six steps, which are supposed to represent the six days of creation. And on the seventh day, they rest and offer sacrifices. And, David is, and that, I think, is the motivation behind what David is doing. We're doing something new here, but we haven't passed away all of the old things, which when the church of Christ does new things is how we're supposed to do it. We don't toss everything that's happened, and this is what rootless evangelicals are all about. I don't care what they sang 100 years ago. I don't care what creed they said 100 years ago. I just need my Bible and I need Jesus. Well, no, okay? You, you, you ha- you're building upon something that already exists. You're building it a certain way. Now, does that, right, as the house gets bigger and bigger, are you, do you add floors as the house goes up? Yeah, but are, are the, is the floor plan the same as you go, right? The, the dimensions are the same as the foundation, correct, as you go up? That's how it's supposed to be. David is adding here. He's going an extra mile to show reverence, to show that something new is happening. But he's following the, 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 what he is given very closely, and he's adding to it. And why is he adding to it? Because something else is going on here that explains a mystery from later in the scriptures that I, I had no idea what, this is where the connection point was. Now, David has prepared the capital city. He made a tent. A very special tent, which isn't the tabernacle. The tabernacle is still somewhere else. But the other thing he's doing is he's wearing a linen ephod. Now, only priests are allowed to wear this. Only priests. So how is David the king wearing a linen ephod? Well, David's use of the ephod suggests that he possessed the credentials of a priest. But how did he attain these? Well, he attained them through conquest. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in Genesis, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem, but he's also clearly a priest. So whoever is the king of Jerusalem is a priest king. And so he's not an Aaronic king. There's all kinds of things the Aaronic priests do that David doesn't do. He does very special things. And he has this other line of priesthood. And that is the line of priesthood that Jesus acquires, as we learn in Hebrews. They're they're, they're priest kings. They're neither a priest nor a king. They're a priest king. It's different. And that is why he's able to add to what they're doing. Right? He adds instruments. He adds singers. He adds all this stuff to the worship of Israel that's based on what they did before, but he's adding to it because he has the authority to do so because he is a priest king. Jesus is also the king of Salem, which means peace in the line of David. He's neither a king nor a priest, but a priest king. This is, this is what Hebrews is all about. Now, David's status as a Melchizedekian priest. Man, that is a word. Let me try that again. Sorry, Laura. <laughs> David's status as a Melchizedekian priest would not have restricted him from leading in certain aspects of worship uh, of, with vigor, as we're going to see. We're going to leave that part till next week because his joy in the Lord gets him in trouble with his wife. Now, Saul never cared about the Ark of God. 
Saul never went there to talk to the Lord. There's a voice that speaks from the top of it. Everybody seems to have forgotten this. Saul's constantly wondering, where am I going to, how am I going to talk to God? How am I going to talk to God? Well, there's a telephone booth, literally in the tabernacle. And if you go in there, there is a voice from above the ark that will talk to you. And this, this is why David is different than Saul. David wants the telephone booth in his city. He wants the ark, the throne of God, in his city. He wants to enthrone Yahweh again over his kingdom. He... He is a king of all these people, but his king is Yahweh. And that's what he wants to reestablish. That is what he is reforming. And, and until he, right, this is what his whole rule is going to be established upon, that he himself is not the king. Israel's original desire for a king was a rejection of Yahweh as king. David determined that it was time to restore everybody to their proper throne, just as he has been. And he went from exile to into the land, and he went further into the land to the city of David. And, and, and first one tribe makes him king, and then all the tribes make him king. And he says, you know what? The, what? What really needs to happen now is Yahweh needs to not only come back into the land, but come to the center of Israel. And he's not going to proceed as a ruler of Israel until the Yahweh is at the center of Israel. Now, if you, do you want to reform your household? Do you want to reform the United States? Do you want to reform the church? Do you want to reform your business? You want whatever, fill in the blank. Reform X, what do you do? You take the ark and you put it in the very center. That's what you do. Right? You take God's throne, the place from which God speaks, and you put that in the center of your life. And, and this is what we're taught week in and week out. When we come here, what is the central thing? What's the thing we sing? What's the thing we t- read? What's the thing we pray about? What's the thing we preach about? It's the word of God. Right? This now, in a sense, has become the ark. And, and, and is there a way to interpret this correctly and a way that's incorrect? Right? Is there a way to come in here and handle the holy things that God has given us correctly or and incorrectly? See, we, we think that all of this hocus-pocus nonsense is in the Old Testament. But as I said before, read, read Corinthians. They were taking communion incorrectly and they were dropping dead. The story in Acts, two people, a husband and wife, sell their property and, and, and keep back some of the money, and they give the proceeds to the, to the church. And, and for this violation, right, they, they drop dead. It, it's not as if God left this kind of thing on Sinai. It's not as if he left it in the Old Testament. <clears throat> now, the question that we have to ask ourselves isn't, why did God slay Uzzah in this fashion? My question is, why doesn't he slay all of us this way? Right? And when you go down that path, we're starting to get somewhere as the people of God. And, and, and this is what is hard for us. It's hard for us to see what happens to this poor guy. We don't think about the fact that he's, right? We don't know the word of God well enough to know that it was a third strike, you're out. And, and I didn't know that. I'm sure most of us don't know that. Right? And so here we are judging the word of God instead of letting it judge us. Now, right? we are not used to handling holy things. That's not how we think about it. Right? When you take that bread and you take that wine, what, are, what is it that you're holding in your hand? What is it you've been doing with those hands? Right? If you drop the bread on the ground, it's not going to get dirtier than you're holding it. What does the waters of baptism actually accomplish? What do our prayers actually accomplish? 
What does our standing here and singing to the Lord God actually accomplish? Are we just in a strip mall in Linwood? Are we just talking to ourselves? Is it just bread and wine? When we stand to sing, we stand before the true ark of the victorious Christ. We stand before his actual throne. We bicker in the car on the way here to go where? To a throne room, right? (laughs) And when you stop yelling at your wife, it's usually because you got here and there's other people. I'll, I'll, I'll leave from the front. I've yelled at my wife in the car, and you know why I stopped? Because now there's witnesses. Not because I think, oh, that's the throne room of God. Right? I will lay angry hands on, on, on my children, disciplining them incorrectly, and I have no thought of then touching holy things like water that I pour on other people or bread that I eat. We, we, we have to think about the sacrosanct things that we possess, that God has given us, and why. He comes into our midst, and he gives us a word. He gives us bread. He gives us wine. He gives us songs. He gives us prayers. He gives us one another's, and, and why? He's communicating to us. He's here with us. Now, is the person sitting to your left and right? Now, okay, if you're sitting by your spouse, fine. If you're not sitting by your spouse, is the person to your left and right and in front of you and behind you the most sacrosanct thing that you come in contact with besides communion? Is that how you think about them? Why not? And if we all, here at the end of the service, take this bread and eat it incorrectly, is, some, is it possible that some of us could die? We are all of us Uzzah. Uzzah's intention was, of his heart was good, but is that good enough? Now, is there, is there no hope for us? No, because God comes right down into the center of our community, and he dwells here with us. He speaks to us. He explains himself to us. He's allowed through his providence for his word to be translated into our, to our, our common tongue. And so we can learn, how do, you, how do you treat holy things? One another, the bread and wine. How do we treat these things? How do we have a proper reverence? Not more reverence than they deserve, but the proper reverence that they deserve. Right? And, and, and ultimately, is it the objects themselves or is it the one that the objects represent? These are questions that I think, as we're reforming our households and our church and our community, that we really have to stop and think and pray about and study. Like David. We need, in this moment, to be filled with the same fear that he was and to say, hey, let's go back and let's review some things and let's think about what we're doing and how God actually wants us to do it. Right? I mean, conservative Christians. We'll get up here and we'll rail and rail and rail and rail. We'll, get, we'll have coffee. We'll stand in the back there and we'll talk and talk and talk about how all, right? I mean, this is a common joke. Well, what are you guys talking about? Oh, we're just fixing the world's problems. Don't mind us. Right? We want to fix things. We want to do things. We want to restore God to his proper place. And we think we know better than Uzzah to do it, how to do it. I would say we don't even know as well as Uzzah. And the thing that we need to learn is how. How do we actually restore his throne to its proper place in our own hearts, our families, our church, and our community? Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the... This revelation, Lord, of your holiness, your breaking out amongst us in this way, I pray that it would fill us with holy and joyous fear. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how um, to handle holy and sacrosanct things, how to love one another as you have loved us, um, all the promises and the glory and the goodness um, that the bread and wine represent, Lord, and that they are to us, that we would consider the waters of our baptism as more, Lord, uh, than a small bath. I pray that we would consider what these things mean, that we would consider how to restore your throne to the center of our lives, and that we would do so to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, and amen.